Hello and welcome to a very special interview from your At The Flicks team. Today we are talking to American filmmaker Randy Gordon Gatika. Hi Randy, how are you doing? Doing great, no complaints. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your festival hit and award-winning film, The Magic Bomb, which you've allowed us to see and we really appreciate that. Thank you. Mm, Definitely. For our listeners, The Magic Bomb was made for no budget, that's Randy's words, not mine, Uh, yet it's set out to rival some of the biggest action movies. Now, when we reviewed The Magic Bomb on our show recently, I said I enjoyed this film more than Tenant, and I stand by that view to this day. (laughs) At least I understood The Magic Bomb, which is more than can be said for Tenant. So, Randy, what were your biggest cinema influences growing up? Um, There's no question about it. The Godfather. um, That really sent me on my way. My father brought home a VHS copy, and I just I just watched it endlessly. You know, I'll still stop and watch it. What about the others in the series of The Godfather 2 and 3? Although I understand there's a new edit coming out of 3 shortly. Personally, I count 1 and 2 as one big movie. Yes. Um, so you know, do I. <laughs> 3 has some good moments, but maybe he should have left it at 2. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, the one is brilliant, and it, it's one of the few films I would say is much much better than its its source material, which I think is a a really interesting thing because great books often at best tend to make so so movies. I think there's just something about the mechanics of a movie and a so so book. You know, they can just be the perfect combination. I was reading an interview with yourself where you, you talked about where you were growing up and, and you had that sort of close-knit community feel to it. Oh, yeah. I was born in the General Hospital in L.A. You know, as my family did better, we moved farther and farther east from the city till I, uh, I went to high school in a relatively nice suburb about 20 minutes out of downtown L.A. And my father had a small trucking business. My uncles were all part of it. And that world of the trucking business that businesses that my father occupied and all my uncles worked for him. Many of my older cousins worked for him. It was a lot like the Godfather or Goodfellas, but without the crime. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's what I read in the interview. And I didn't really want to say that. I just wanted to, to, to for, for you to say that. that, that yeah. Uh, but it sounds a, you know, a wonderful environment and certainly creative. Oh, no question about it. I mean, I could make 10 movies and I'll only have skimmed the surface of the experience. All of my uncles were characters. Um, I remember one of my best friends coming up to me and saying, hey, you know, your dad kind of reminds me of uh, Big Paul and Goodfellas. And, <laughs> and you know, wow. <laughs> I'm about five, six, but my dad was a big guy. You know, he was quiet. He was in the Marine Corps. I mean, he was like a Mexican-American Robert Mitchum. He'd scare the hell out of you just looking at you. And if you got to know him a little bit, he was the sweetest, nicest, most generous man that you could ever meet. And I think my experience of growing up in this world and then seeing The Godfather, it's just like on many levels, I must have had a sense of the 
that they intersected. And you said that, again, that you started making films in high school. Did those films reflect that family life or, or were they more, you know, what a teenage boy would do? I, I think most of the latter. I really got into film and, and studying and studying the technique of it all on my own. I would start out by just making montages of things. I, I would do these animated films with my soldiers. World War II reenactments and things like that. And I did do some stuff with my buddies that was kind of along the lines of jackass, of, you know, <laughs> you know, where we'd like burn a rubber tire and let it go down a hill and film it or, <laughs> or re yeah. Or reenact one of my buddies throwing a supermarket cart on top of someone from the second floor and, you know, and he'd play dead and just, you know, how to, how to make that all believable. It does sound fun. That does. With uh, a lifelong interest in films and making movies, how long before did you have the idea for The Magic Bomb before you started writing it? I noticed that I'm already, and I've probably always been in the habit of carrying around ideas for a few years. I'll, uh, I'll jot down a few notes and then just let something sort of cook. The basic idea must have just been sitting in my head for a few years. And then I can write very fast to get a first draft out. And then I'll endlessly revise, you know, I, and I, and I include revising, like what you do as you shoot, what you do as you edit. I think filmmaking is just ultimately endless revising. I'm, you know, I'm good at if somebody has an idea on the spot of how about I say this, if it's better, just doing it. Early on, I would um, work on sets as a PA and stuff. And that's a great learning experience because you'll see directors make mistakes you don't want to make. And I would often see like something about a director's ego not wanting to listen to a suggestion from an unpaid PA. And it was a good suggestion. Uh, I've tried to learn from that. Was that in New York or Los Angeles? Or in Los Angeles, in, in L.A. Given the amount of time you were filming, and, and you did film The Magic Bomb over a, a long period of time, were you forced to make any revisions to your script or characters? Oh, yeah. This is going back a, a couple of years, and I'm, and I don't write down dates and stuff, but. I think I shot it over a six to nine month period. Even when I was like done with the final edit, I would see like, wow, there's a good spot for an insert shot. And I would grab the camera and go run out and get that shot even after it was edited. I had the, the scenes written down for the Maria Young's character. And we started shooting her scenes and it was evident like, wow, she's really good and interesting. I've got to write another scene for her, which I did in the middle of shooting. I just want to now sort of go on and talk about something that I absolutely loved in the film. And that's your location work. Well, firstly, it made me very nostalgic to go back to New York. And I've got family in Tarrytown, so I've already, once COVID's over, I'll be back over. You didn't film in a lot of the places you would expect from New York, it had that feeling of something like the French Connection to me. 
and it was just wonderful. You felt like you were there. You bring up something really interesting, which I like a lot. I listened to your last show, and I believe in that Keith Richards quote, steal everything from everyone. You guys all mentioned films while talking about the magic bomb that I love. You mentioned The French Connection. I'm always thinking about that stuff. And I personally feel like if I'm watching a movie or I'm listening to a song, that if you, you know, if you listen or watch two or three times, you can, you can see somebody's influences. And I absolutely love, I absolutely embrace, like you guys picked off all of my influences. <laughs> so good, good job on your part. Thank you for using those sort of films. You don't consciously try to reference something. Like, I think you're always trying to serve the story, but still the influences come out. I think it's when you knowingly reference something while making it, and then you're watching the film. The film almost stops for a moment to make the reference. If that was the case, I would hate it. It That would just break my heart. But if my influences come out while one is engrossed in the story, I love that. That makes my day. But here's the thing that goes with those locations. If you see most films or TV shows filmed in New York today, there's a gloss to them. This doesn't have that gloss. This this feels like a 1970s. And for me, the, you can't get higher praise. That's when I first started going to the cinema. So it, it had that immediacy, that guerrilla filmmaking. and there's a quality that you can touch and you really captured that those elevated um, scenes with the elevated trains were they were those in queens because i i thought that is so cinematic that the trains moving the people on the street are moving cars are moving it and and you were panning your camera and i just thought yeah that's new york everything's going and it's going fast and it ju- you just really captured it for me i spend every waking hour just looking for locations, even if I don't have a story. TV shows and movies, whether it's LA or New York, will tend to use the same locations over and over again. And so I try to avoid that. And, Mm. you know, even if I'm doing an errand in the city, you know, like I'll notice like, oh, I just saw that in Law and Order or (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And when I first got to New York, I was looking for the New York that's in all of our heads from the movies, which which was fun for a while. Like I would search out locations where The Godfather had been shot, and that was kind of fun. But the real beauty of New York is that once you live here a while, it's unlike any other place you're going to live. And you really just need to search it out a little bit. There's a little Moscow here. There's a little Sri Lanka here. There, you know, there's neighborhoods. They're, they're hidden, and then they're constantly changing. For someone like me, it's like a gold mine of just, wow, I've got to remember this because I've got to use it someday. I like that you asked about the subways a moment ago and Queens because I it always stuck in my head that Kubrick had shot Full Metal Jacket near his home. Yeah, you in know? London. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so when I made The Magic Bomb, 
I had to stay within a certain radius of my house because I mainly shot it between eight o'clock and 3 p.m. while my kids were at school. I couldn't rush off to Queens. Luckily, within five mile radius, I found 90% of the locations. And New York, unlike LA, it's, it's compacted. So like I live in this very gentrified neighborhood, but mm. you walk three or four blocks and you can find old New York. Listening to this, and I'm thinking that you get filmmakers who are not born in a place and they see it differently to other people. I mean, David McKenzie did this with Helen Highwater a few years ago, and obviously Roma Polanski with Los Angeles back in the 70s. And I get that feeling with you as well. You know, you've seen New York in a way that people that were born and brought up in New York don't see. I think there's a truth to that. Like, I remember the first time I went exploring up in the Bronx, I went to this old Italian neighborhood, Arthur Avenue. And I started talking to this old guy. You know, he started asking me questions like, hey, where are you from? And I'm, oh, I live in Hell's Kitchen. Oh, yeah, what's going on over there? (laughs) And it, it became clear to me that the guy never left his neighborhood. You talk to the average person maybe anywhere. You get the feeling they often don't wander far beyond whatever their world happens to be, which is reasonable, you know, because one has a job, one has kids. It takes time to to wander and to search and to find these things. We live not that far from Bristol in the UK, but I know New York more than I know Bristol. I go stay in Tarrytown, so I'll come into Manhattan and I'll just wander around. And I know more about that than I know of Bristol. And that's yeah. near to me. I have a question for you, uh, Randy, from uh, one of our other reviewers who was on that show, Phil. And again, you said it was filmed over an extended period. And I've been in New York in different seasons, and I know how different each season can be. Phil's question is, how difficult was it to match footage and tone of the scenes as it was filmed over such an extended period of time? I think that's an excellent question. And here's what I believe. If the script is accurate and it's true and the story's true and the character's emotional journey is true and then you're shooting and you're shooting coverage for a master shot you shot months ago if the light is relatively similar then but more important everything is emotionally true yeah, the scenes will match. And I think that's what people refer to when they say movie magic. If the scene is written right, then, and the actor has to come back to it three weeks later, if you've cast the right actor, they'll get there. It involves a little bit of work with cutting the thing. You do, you know, the post-production color of the footage. You've got a certain amount of latitude to make things match. But I mean, the most important thing in order to get up past that problem is, is your script right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, if a scene's not right, even if the scenes match, it's, it doesn't fly. Yeah. Because in terms of narrative, it takes place over a what, couple of days. Everything matched for me. If anything was, you know, filmed in summer or then in winter, I couldn't tell that. 
So it worked perfectly. Going on to budget, because as you said, you know, you, you made this for for no budget at all. You should be very proud of that, considering what's on screen. Franchise movie, I, I would say, you know, in terms of its scope. But if you had been given a budget, say a couple of million, what would you have expanded on, Randy? I, I would have done a few things differently. You know, let me start by saying this, that I knew I was going to make a no-budget movie. And I know what that meant was there would be no gunfire, no special effects. The more you move the camera around, the more money it, it's going to cost you. Each setup is time and whatnot. At the same time, I knew that I didn't want to make a Talking Heads movie of just people talking on camera and talking to each other. Like that just, you know, that can be done well, but it's not, it's not my thing. It's not where I want to go. And on one hand, I knew that I had to, I was making a Talking Heads movie. At the same time, I wanted to stage everything and write the scenes in such a way where it wouldn't seem like a Talking Heads movie. Are there things I would change? Of course. Are there places where I met my goals? Yes. Are there places where I almost met my goals? Yes. If I was going to do this with more money, there would be less dialogue. I think the place where, as a movie maker, you've always got to challenge yourself is, how can I say this without dialogue? How can I do this in pictures? And I think more than anything, what more money would allow me to do is to tell the story more in pictures. And I think that can be more emotionally and psychologically engrossing. Yeah, I would agree. On the subject of staging, now I read in a previous interview where you said you wrote and staged every scene with limits, knowing I had no real way to control the lighting or sound. So there were a number of fight scenes as you go later on in the film. How did you approach that with those fight scenes? I've seen people film fight scenes and they're very, very carefully blocked. I'm curious how you approached it. There's one extended fight in the movie and that fellow had fight training experience and he was good. And I think one of the tricks is, and this is another thing I learned being a PA on things is like, you get good people and then you get out of their way. You know, you just, you you tell them, this is what I'm thinking about. Let them do their magic. And the guy was very good. I wouldn't argue with him. (laughs) (laughs) No. Yeah. You know, he he was very convincing in that role. Mm. That's a great way of putting it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Get out of their way. Was there much direction you give him or it was just, okay, this is where I'm going to do the camera. You do what you want. It becomes a collaboration. Once people sense that you trust them, they just collaborate a lot better. How about if Mm. we try this? And yeah, and do you mind if we adjust a little bit and make sure your elbow hits right there? Oh, yeah, no problem. Great. Let's go on and, and talk a little bit about some of the themes in the film. And the big one of the big aspects is conspiracy theories. And this, again, is another area where the film has links to the 1970s. There were so many of these conspiracy theory films in the 70s, and this picks up on it. 
but with the twist of, you know, this is where we are today. We got a guy currently in the White House, thankfully not for much longer. Hopefully by the time this goes out, he's gone, who indulges in conspiracy theories on a daily basis. How much of that current world attitude influence your script and ideas? Oh, huge, huge, huge. Like, like there are no limits. Um, there's nothing <laughs> I love more than a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories are fabulous because they they bring you back to where you were as a 14 year old. You know, when you sit around with your buddies and you, you know, and you just spend hours talking about crazy conspiracy theories and, you know, you're trying to top one another. And, you know, like my aunt worked in a hospital and she swore that Hitler was in the mafia. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. And when you are at that place as a 14-year-old, that's that's like the perfect raw material for a good movie or being a, a member of the audience, just being in the right frame of mind to get lost in a crazy story. Any movie I make, there's a part of me that's trying to get back to that place and also bring the audience with me. You know, there was a lot of good conspiracy theory related movies from the 70s that were so-so, but they sounded brilliant. Like mm. The Boys from Brazil is a yeah. so-so movie. <laughs> yeah. It's got some great moments, but mm. it doesn't quite live up to the concept. The concept is just amazing. So part of the challenge that I gave myself is I wanted to make a movie that sounded as good as the conspiracy theory. Another challenge I like and another game I like to play is, okay, if this conspiracy theory is true, then what would it take? Like, how would you literally do it? And I think that was part of the game for me with the magic bomb. One of the things with conspiracy theories it's it can almost be like a comfort blanket. So, and I, I'm very conscious. I don't want to give the game away of this film because I want people to discover it. There is this theory within there that every event is controlled. There are people that control, and this is a, a big conspiracy theory that, that, mm. that there are groups out there with control. Whereas, in fact, there is just chaos. But <laughs> you look at chaos. You look at structure and order. People are going to veer towards that structure and order. So so I think that's another fascinating theme that comes into the film. It almost becomes that comfort blanket. Most of us have this nature of if somebody tells us to do something, we'll go do the opposite. But there's a space within all of us to, like, if you make a suggestion to someone in the right way, they'll go do it. Part of the game for me with The Magic Bomb is how can I get my characters into that space where they're all sort of existing in that space of if someone says something, one of them is going to go do it. If I was going to be in the top of the food chain somewhere in a conspiracy theory, you know, I think the way it would work would be you're making suggestions and then you let the dice roll. You know, then you 
control it a little bit more than you throw the dice. And it's, it's this controlling what you can while watching the chaos, if that made sense. Yeah, it, it, it does. But then you'd also want to weight the dice as well so you know they're going to go in your favor. So in the case of Conrad in the very beginning, they've given him no options. He has to follow through on the plan yeah. because he knows the alternative is complete destruction of his world. I think one of the things that makes a good movie is one way or another, no matter what your genre is, you've got to get your characters to that space, to that place. Yeah. Even if it's a romantic comedy, you know, The Hangover is a beloved movie because of the characters are kind of in that space of what choice do they got? Like they can't come home without their buddy. Yes. Yeah. And, and you go on, as you say, an absurdist journey. But if you were in that journey, what choice do you have? Yeah. And what I like, and I, I'm going to be very careful around this, I don't want to give the game away, but there is a, a lovely reference to the Parallax view. Was that intentional? It. It, I don't think it it was consciously, but I love the parallax view. Like when I think all is said and done about Beatty, that's going to be his movie. You know, not Reds, not some of the other things he's done, but that movie. That you know, that movie is almost as close to perfect as you can get to it. There's two movies from that era, which I really love the parallax view and three days on the condor. Oh yes. Oh yes. (laughs) And I think in both instances, that is, if not the best work from each of those directors, it's close to it. I think part of the strength of those movies arrive from there's not more character study than you need. In both those movies, you know just enough about the main characters as you need to. And I think movies from the 70s, I think when they get into a problem, it's there's a little bit too much time on the psychological milieu of the characters. And just, you know, the more I think about movies, the more I see that it's got to be story, story, and story particularly in Three Days of the Condor, again, it's another case where you've got this seeming chaos in the beginning, but then the the character of the Condor, played by Redford, has only got one path he can go down. Yeah. And and each time he thinks he's resolved it, it blows up in his face. Hmm. Uh, Wonderful film. But that was such a good movie because it starts off and you go, oh, hang on a minute, everybody's dead. Well, this is over. (laughs) (laughs) And you think... And then the te- then he, the director reaches out of the screen, grabs your hand, and takes you on this journey, and it's just wonderful. And you think, I would never have thought of that, you know, because you know my my non cinematic view of the world would be, well, everybody's dead. Let's just call the police. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's exactly where he wants you. Because then he goes, no, 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 here we go. You jump from lily pad to lily pad as you make your way across the pond. It's just wonderful. Yeah. But it's the same with Conrad in this, because you see the opening yes. you know, where he's given the ultimatum, <laughs> yeah. and then you flash back and you think, 
well, how the hell does somebody end up in a situation where you're given a choice like this? And then you see the pieces start to come in and you realize he's being forced down this path. Every choice he thinks he's making, he ain't making it. It wasn't conscious. I was just trying to tell Conrad's story. But if one way or another, if all I did was remake movies like The Parallax View over and over again, I would be a happy camper. (laughs) It's taken the themes that were in those films. And, you know, we're talking 40, 50 years, well, 45 years ago. Yeah. And making those themes relevant for today. And I think that is a real trick that you've done here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Just want to talk about the acting a little bit. Again, you had these actors that came in again over this length of time Jonathan Iglesias, uh, Maria Young, and for me, Nicole Paloma. They were brilliant. Yes. Um, did you know them brilliant. beforehand or did, did you audition them? Jonathan, I had shot a commercial with i just knew when i started creating the character of conrad that he was perfect for it once i knew i was going to do magic bomb you know i did auditions you know it's new york if you're in new york or la there's a million actors that need tape the trick is just putting in the time to see as many of them as possible that's where I really had a million dollar budget was with the cast. They're fantastic. That's the ultimate in finding the right people and getting out of their way. One of those characters I mentioned, and I will not go any further on that, <laughs> is has to change completely during the course yeah. of the film. And again, that was really, really well done and a believable switch. Yeah. The guy who played Gus. He's a friend of mine, but not like we weren't close friends. His kid was in school with my kid and we knew each other a little bit. And I I just had a feeling he might be able to do this. He, you know, he's a musician. You know, we got along great talking about music and stuff. Like his wife is in theater. And so he's been involved in theater. Uh, you know, I started talking to him about it and he said, yeah, sure, I'll give it a try. And without knowing anything about him, like as we got to know each other and as we were making the film, it turned out he had been raised in the South. And he looked at me with a Cheshire Cat smile and he said, oh, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, yeah, I, I know these people. <laughs> I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, handing in the script with those words on, because that is a very uncomfortable role. That really struck me, some of the things he was saying. The look on his face when he read that, it must have been priceless. I didn't know his background. And then he says to me again, like, yeah, I know these guys. Don't worry about mm. it. <laughs> I've heard this before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. So when Kenny came to delivering that dialogue on the day, was he very uncomfortable delivering it? You know, like, I think he did incredible. And I think if I had to point to a problem, it's that's where I took to the limit trying to avoid my talking heads thing. Like, yeah, 
I don't mind saying this. Like I, I've read stories where Billy Wilder would look at his movies 50 years later and sit on the couch and say, you know, what I should have done is blah, 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 blah. And one is forever struck with those, you know, yeah. I should have done this. Maybe I could have done that. These people exist. Yeah, you know, as we know, and, and as Kenny said to you, that um, he knew these people growing up. To have that intense burst of it is, it's very brave, actually. It, yeah. it was a very brave move on both your part and his part to do it. Quite shocking. As we started in this conversation, where it's an understatement to say we're living in interesting times. Yeah. And, and um, what do you mean, living? All <laughs> <laughs> this living. <laughs> I've been around some pretty colorful people in my life, you know, whose views maybe don't match with my own. But on someone whom you encounter who's extreme, there is a humanity there. And there is and and sometimes somebody who's extreme in views that maybe aren't your own, there they can possess a sort of honesty that those of us who try to live and for lack of a better phrase, you know, the civilized society, you know, we're always having to suppress ourselves a little bit. Do any of us really understand what's going on with economic inequality? Growing up Mexican American, when I'd be in my neighborhoods where I was raised, there's a way we would talk we wouldn't talk that way around others or you wouldn't hear mm. other talk around others that way. I've had my, my black friends whom I've grown up with Asian friends who I've grown up with say, you know, like, you know, once we, I get around my family, they can be totally racist to others. And <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, I think it's this complicated thing that it's like, a puzzle that, you know, that you can never, ever quite solve. I'm trying to do my best to share what's actually there. And and to be fair, Kenny Noel must have had trust in you to be able to say that. Yeah. He, he knew that you weren't going to sort of do something bad to him as you were going through some very, very tough scenes. So, and and I think that goes with all the actors. You could see, well, not only on film. You, you had Jonathan handing out flyers for free at one point, I think. They definitely trusted you. And I, and I think that's a very good place for a, a, a director to be. The thing I did like about Gus is he wasn't just a talking head. He had internalized all this, what I would consider nonsense that he was spouting. And he seemed to have some sort of rational world view, which was rational to him, <laughs> the fact that most of it was irrational. But that was the thing that got me that with that character. Here was somebody who was very, very racist, but he had all the reasons for being racist and, and being a, what most people would consider a really reprehensible character. So when he gets ripped off, as it were, and I'm not going to go into details, you get a sense of, well, he deserved that. But also, uh, did he really deserve that? Because... You know, so I liked that piece, and I thought that that pulled it out of being just a, a two people talking and one having a very ulterior motive to rip the other off. So I liked it, even though, as you said, you know, if you had had more money, that had been a bit more cinematic. 
I think one of my favorite things about the reception to the Magic Bomb is depending on who I'm talking to, like different people will have their reaction to their favorite character. My wife really connected with the Maria Young character. And at the screening at the film festivals, like she'd cheer when her name came up. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, had, I've had people walk up to me and say, hey, man, Gus was really cool. No. I, you know, um, you know, just like, you know, the poor guy. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I he's so, you know, there's something so tragic and pathetic about him. That's the aspect that was really like kind of moving and cool about it. Yeah. I love that different people respond strongly to the different characters. And when they tell me, you know, that who their favorite character is, they're sort of saying, I felt this was the strongest performance. As they're telling me, there's this, there's assumption on their part where they're looking at me like, I know you agree with me, right? Whoops. It's like asking to pick a favorite child, isn't it? Yeah. You're never going to get an answer. As I said, my favorite character was Clara, the, the Nicole Palermo character, because I love the depth to that character. You're right. And Gus makes an impression. Because look how long we just spent talking about him. Mm. <laughs> yes, and and when you first meet him and you realise uh, this guy's agoraphobic, he's a shut-in, I think you think, oh, dear, and then it flips. And I thought that was a, a, a really nice move. So I liked, I liked all of that. So it certainly updates the conspiracy theory into modern times because if he's shut in and his, his world is the internet, this is what you get. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you guys a secret that I haven't said to anyone. I think the character that I relate to, that I want to, I, I don't know if this is true, but I I want to be able to say that maybe this is the character I relate to best is probably Keel. You know, he's like my my uh, Colonel Kurtz in the script. <laughs> okay, you you're mean the one that... to t- you're going to have to talk your way out of this one, okay? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so he goes across New York, leaving a trail of death and destruction. <laughs> That's me. He like he ends up in the same place of one of my favorite themes of that no one can ever know everything. And the danger is thinking that you do. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. 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 No, that's, that's great. I, it is It is a great film. It, it's you know, started a great debate here, and I think that uh, people need to check this film out for themselves. And where can if, – if people want to see The Magic Bomb and listening to this, I imagine they, they will want to now. They didn't before. Where, where can they find the film, Randy? Vimeo on demand for – for a, a, a 1978 ticket price. We're trying to work out what 1978 ticket price was now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, uh, we can all remember you, it. You, you, can, you, you can watch it for like 350 or you can, you ah. can own it for five bucks. Ah, perfect. Okay. 
And Magic Bomb has been doing really well on the festival circuit, which is another reason why people should really seek this out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you got any other festivals planned for this one? Or is COVID sort of unfortunately curtailed your current plans? I got in the last couple of festivals just as COVID blew up. So like I really dodged a bullet. And one of the neat things that has happened is that the internet, the web has kind of turned into one giant film festival. You know, like we all had to go somewhere. Yes, that's true. A lot of festivals have gone online, haven't they? Yeah. And, but I mean, but more, it's just also even beyond that, it's just people that would normally be going to the film festivals. We're just all kind of on Twitter talking to each other. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I stress again to our listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is well worth your time. Well worth it. Mm -hmm. As you can see, it's prompted uh, this discussion. So, so Randy, what are you working on now? Anything you can share with us? Um, absolutely. I've uh, written a couple of scripts. I've got a young producer on each, trying to get him up, set up the real way to actually make a real movie. At, at this moment, at the very most, I'll, uh, I'll share titles and genres. One is called Saving Shadow. It's a like Latinx film similar to say the farewell, um, okay. you know, like a family film Yeah, oh, wow. and something on a slightly bigger budget titled the big coconut where a Latinx guy, a Mexican American guy from LA meets a Jewish girl from New York. They, <laughs> they go to a club, they have drinks and they uh, wake up the next morning and, and they hardly know each other, but, at some point in the middle of the night, they got married. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a horror film then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come out in a cold sweat now. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? I, I've, got, I've got to warn you guys that um, I've been accused of being a good listener. And I know that in the midst of this conversation, I've, each of you has said at least one thing where in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I got to use that somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, quoting Jeff. That's the worst. Uh, the absolute yeah. worst. Most of my worst quotes are edited out of, out, out of our shows. Otherwise, I, I would sound continually like Kenny, I imagine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what Graham tells me anyway. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've had a few. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you still on the whiskey? That's the problem. That's what I got. Yeah, watch yeah. No, no. I've got a, a small glass of whiskey with me tonight, that's, so that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's all right. <laughs> Randy, it's Brilliant. been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. And we wish you every continued success with the Magic Bomb. It really deserves it. And you know, as you develop the new projects, we'd love to talk to you again. Yeah. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. I'd love it. And mm-hmm. um definitely. And if you're ever coming to Brooklyn, sh- shoot me a warning and we'll have a pint. Oh. That sounds a good idea. Well, yeah. I'm I have I've got to go to Tarrytown where I've got my family. So um when I'm coming over, I will drop you a line. Sounds perfect, man. Okay. Uh, so first round's fair. on me. 
<laughs> and the second and the third. You know, <laughs> yeah, Neil won't be coming with me. Right. No. <laughs> Randy, it, it has been tremendous. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Absolutely fantastic. Great meeting thank you guys. You. Thank you guys. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.